continuing in our series through the Gospel of John this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to John 8, verse 12, and we'll pick up there in a moment. Uh, By way of reminder, if you were here last week, well, even if you weren't here last week, Kelly taught uh, on the story of the woman who was caught in adultery and very nearly stoned. And in that story, Jesus rescues the woman and exposes the sin of the religious leaders at the same time. Uh, But as Kelly pointed out, that story, as you'll see a note in your Bibles, actually wasn't in the earliest manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of John. And in some ways, if you're just reading through, it almost flows a little better without that story. Because two weeks ago, we saw Jesus at the Festival of Tabernacles in Jerusalem at the temple, and he was teaching his disciples and well, t- talking to the crowds and, and offering living water, saying, hey, if you come and follow me and believe in me, living water will flow from you. Uh, this week, we are uh, still in this same narrative of Jesus at the Festival of Tabernacles, teaching in the temple courts uh, in a very tense environment. And this week, Jesus is going to make some equally stunning claims, not about water, uh, but about light. We pick up in verse 12. This is what it says. It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Let's pray. Jesus, we uh, come to you this morning as our king, as our rabbi, as our teacher, as the one who uh, shows us where life is found, uh, the good shepherd, the one who uh, calms the storms that can often feel like uh, life in the here and now, uh, the one who shows us how to live and to live well in the light Uh, with a light burden, with a non-anxious heart. And Lord, as we uh, even contemplate today uh, sort of uh, life and uh, motherhood and what we are devoting ourselves to, I was just reminded as as I read back through this passage again early this morning, just this concept that Uh, No one seized you. You weren't put to death on this day because your hour had not yet come. I was just reminded reading through that that each one of us has an hour uh, that will come. 
uh, that life is short, that we only have uh, hours and, and days and uh, hopefully decades, but that's not guaranteed. Uh, each one of us in this room has an hour that will come, uh, and after that we will stand before you. And I pray, Lord, that we would live in light of that, that as we contemplate uh, the call on the life of your disciples, as we contemplate uh, what it looks like to walk in light or to walk in darkness, uh, Lord, our hours matter, our days matter, our weeks matter. Uh, and sometimes we lose sight of that. And so would we be conscious of the fact this morning that life is short, that we uh, have an hour that will come, uh, and we want to live well in light of what lies ahead. Come and speak to us now. Guide us in the power of the Spirit. And in Jesus' name, amen. As the Jewish people uh, gather in Jerusalem, as we saw two weeks ago and we see again today, it is the Festival of Tabernacles. And as a reminder, what they're doing in the Festival of Tabernacles is celebrating the Exodus in which God freed them from slavery and sustained them for 40 years in the desert. And the two great themes of this festival were water and light. The theme of water came about because um, Jesus, as the rock, actually miraculously supplied water for them in the desert when uh, two million freed slaves would have died apart from that miraculous provision. Uh, and as we studied two weeks ago, there are actually other aspects of water that were being celebrated at the same time. But in, and, and when it comes to the Exodus, they're celebrating the water that was supplied from the rock, but they're also celebrating light at the same time. And if you go back and read the book of Exodus, very consistently through that book, God reveals himself to uh, this nation that's being formed as light. Right from the beginning, the opening chapters, the burning bush, God is light uh, that is shown out and Moses is drawn to that light and speaks with God. Uh, but even after that, um, in, at Mount Sinai, as the covenant is being formed, God reveals himself in thunder and lightning and light on the top of the mountain uh, where the covenant is formed. And during their time in the desert, God reveals himself at night uh, as a pillar of light, as a pillar of fire, lighting up the desert night and guiding them in the way they should go. So there's a seven-day festival, um, sort of an eight-day festival because it ends with a Sabbath day. But throughout the course of this week, they are celebrating water and light. And as they reach the end of this week, sort of the climax of the festival, they have water ceremonies and light ceremonies. So two weeks ago, it was the water ceremony in which more water than usual was being poured out at the altar of God and flowing out of the temple, a reminiscent of Ezekiel's vision of the future kingdom of God and God's abundance and blessing. Uh, but they also had a light ceremony that would take place near the end of this week. At the climax of the Festival of Tabernacles, great bowls would be set up around the temple grounds and filled with oil. And uh, when that night fell, huge fires would be ignited in these giant bowls on the Temple Mount. And because uh, it was up on the hill, and Jerusalem's built up on the hill, but the temple's sort of near the high point of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, uh, for the most part, was built with lighter colored stones, these fires 
would uh, create this mesmerizing atmosphere in the city. They would shine out across the city and sort of light the city up. Uh, and as these giant bowls were being lit, other people would go and light torches and smaller fires around the city. So you have to picture an ancient city which has no electricity. And uh, when night fell, it was dark. It was totally dark, aside from maybe one or two small lights. But on this particular night, the whole city was lit up. And for miles around, you would have been able to see these bright and brilliant lights. And it's in this context, and perhaps in this moment, that Jesus stands up and says, quote, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And this would have had a tremendous impact on his listeners in this environment as they're actively celebrating God as the light of the world, uh, the light that was provided for them in the Exodus. But if you go back and reread the Exodus account, one of the things you'll notice is these themes of light and darkness, particularly as they relate to the people of God. Uh, the people of God throughout that account are often walking in the light by God's grace, and the enemies of God are often walking in darkness. So I didn't actually notice this or think about the connection until recently, but if you go back and look at the 10 plagues, and even list the plagues. You think, oh yeah, there's like frogs and gnats and, and blood and all of this stuff. Uh, there's a plague I often forget about, and it's called, quote, the plague of darkness. And when this plague hits, we're told that the Lord says to Moses, hey, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone or move about for three days. And here's the other part I often miss. All the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Interesting. So the unbelieving world in this account is literally in darkness while the people of God, purely by God's grace, he says later, you weren't any better than the Egyptians, but I chose you. So it's not because of them, it's because of God. They're actually walking in the light. And then it shows up again. After they're freed from slavery, they're headed out into the desert, and uh, they get trapped at the edge of the Red Sea. And by all accounts, it looks like they will either be captured or killed in this moment. And the Israelites are crying out to God. And then it says this, again in the Exodus. It says, The angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. Now, as a side note, in the Old Testament, when you read about the angel of God, or oftentimes it will say the angel of the Lord, you're actually reading about Jesus. And if you do a word study and pull out all the instances in which this phrase is used, you'll see that collectively it's speaking of a divine manifestation 
that is the Word of God and God at the same time. So there's not really a category. It'll say the angel of the Lord did this or spoke this to Abraham. But the response is that they speak in return is always God or I've just seen the Lord. So what we're actually seeing is the eternal Son of God in action. Now, no one knows him by the name Jesus yet. He hasn't taken on that name. But this is one of the members of the Trinity in action uh, on the ground in the story of Israel. And so in a sense, what we're reading in this account is that Jesus is there along with this cloud uh, that's in front of Israel. And they both move to the back. But in the process, what they're doing is they're uh, making a way of salvation for Israel in this impossible situation through the waters. But in the presence of God, interestingly enough, there is uh, darkness on the one side, on the enemies of God, and light on the other. So if you're in the light, you see the Lord and you see the path of salvation and you can navigate wisely. But the enemies of God aren't that far away. They're very close. They're dangerously close. And yet they are in complete darkness. And so what's happening uh, in the Gospel of John is essentially this same story all over again. From beginning to end, John is uh, hitting on this theme of light and darkness. Who's in the light and who's in the darkness? Who can see uh, and who is blind in the spiritual sense? And so even as they're celebrating the exodus through these ceremonies and they're, they're talking about God being the light of the world, uh, he's actually standing right there in the flesh revealing to, him, to them that he is present and he is the light of the world. And then comes the response. All these crowds are exposed to Jesus and his teaching, but every individual and every family unit then has to decide how are we going to respond to this person, to this message, to this truth claim. Are we going to step forward in faith into the light or am I going to step back in doubt and anger and disbelief? into the darkness. Uh, and what we see through this account is that the religious leaders and essentially everyone who rejects him is stepping backward away from Jesus into the darkness. And by doing so, they effectively become the new Egyptians from the Exodus account. They are uh, in the darkness. They cannot see. They find Jesus incomprehensible. They don't know what to make of him or how to interpret him or understand him. And in the end, without fully realizing it, they are trying to kill God and his people in their confusion as they sort of stumble about in spiritual darkness. Uh, they, the people of God are in the light, but the enemies of God stand in the darkness. And what was true of the Exodus then is true of the first century, and the crowds that Jesus is talking to. And it's also equally true of us today in the world that we live in. We live in a secular culture that doesn't know Jesus on a collective level, that doesn't know or understand the gospel, uh, and yet is rejecting it anyhow, sort of out of hand without fully understanding what they're rejecting. And what results from rejecting the light is darkness. It's confusion. 
Uh, it's, it's an inability to properly navigate life. Uh, a fog comes in and clouds judgment. And within that sort of secular fog, uh, which I was raised in, uh, we, we don't know who Jesus is. We don't know where life came from. We don't know where we came from. Uh, we, we don't know what our purpose is. And we don't know what will happen after we die. This is, this is part of the cloud, the fog of, yeah, I really don't know. You can ask very, very intelligent secular people, people who have higher IQs than any of us, but are living in a secular paradigm, and say, hey, do you know where, where life came from? No. Do you know where you came from? No. Do, do you know what your identity is? No. Do you know what the purpose of your life is? No. Do you know what will happen after you die? No. And yet within our secular culture, many of those people are seen as enlightened. This is in, this, it, we literally call it the enlightenment. That we've come into this place uh, that the scriptures would actually say, no, that's, that's not enlightened. That, that is not light. That is darkness. You're confused about even the most basic questions and facts of our existence. Many of those world secular worldviews don't actually make sense within themselves. You can look at the most intelligent philosophers and secular atheists of the last couple of centuries, but when you actually look at what they believe and how they live, it doesn't, it doesn't even make sense within itself. They sort of have these um, patched together ideas from Darwinian evolution uh, paired with this general idea that we should all just try to be kind. And, and when you start digging into, hey, what do you believe and why do you believe this? Uh, it, it, does, it can't even be uh, reconciled within itself. There's this degree of fog or confusion in that place. So when you're in the dark, uh, you can't see Jesus for who he is. You can't see the way forward. You can't see the miracle of the cross or the pathway that it's making through the metaphorical Red Sea. All of that stuff that many of us take for granted and almost get bored of, if we're honest, sort of week in and week out, um, most of the world cannot see that. If you imagine in the Exodus, there's this cloud, but on one side of the cloud, there's light, and on the other side, there's darkness. The statistical majority of the uh, world population is currently on the other side of that cloud in a place of darkness where they cannot see Jesus for who he is. They cannot see the way of salvation. It's sort of out of sight, out of mind. It feels uh, beyond reach, beyond grasp, beyond comprehension. And... Uh, and so we then find ourselves uh, as people who are in the light, bringing that light into a culture where many people consider themselves superior, uh, consider themselves enlightened, uh, and sort of look down on the church, don't really think there's anything comprehensible that we have to offer, when in reality, when you examine the secular worldview, uh, it is full of holes and inconsistencies that they often do not examine. Uh, and the most basic uh, questions uh, uh, about life are difficult to answer in that place. They were difficult for me to answer 
uh, pre-Jesus. And so at a cultural level, what you see if you look back over the last 2,000 years is that the Western world uh, went from a place of pre-Christian darkness and what we call paganism in which uh, we as the Western world were just making wild and crazy guesses about the pagan gods, who they were, what they were like, what they uh, demanded of humanity. And we went from this sort of pre-Christian darkness uh, into a place where, culturally speaking, the main tools we had to navigate were actually Jesus and the Scriptures. And there were many, many imperfect things about that time period in Western history. There were many beautiful things about that time as well, where just sort of the default assumption was that God is there uh, and the Sermon on the Mount is beautiful and biblical justice is what we should be seeking to live out at a societal level. And it transformed society on every level. It was uh, in many ways a beautiful period of time. We're now living in a post-Christian time period in which we're uh, sort of departing from the light, believing that we have grown beyond it, that we don't need Jesus or Scripture anymore, uh, that like Adam and Eve in the garden, when it comes to defining good and evil, we can do it better. We can do it better than religion. We can do it better than the Scriptures. Let's depart from that. Let's progress beyond that. This whole image of, of secular progressivism means, no, we have to keep moving on to the next thing. But by definition... If you're in the light and you depart from it, what you are departing into is darkness. You, you cannot depart from the light and suddenly be more enlightened than you were before. And so that's sort of what's happening, what we're wrestling with on a cultural level. That's where we find ourselves today as followers of Jesus, uh, following him in the midst of a culture that thinks it's very clever and enlightened for moving beyond him, uh, but is now walking in darkness and confusion. Proverbs 4, verse 19 says it this way. It says, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. I think of that Exodus imagery of darkness that can be felt. It's thick, it's real, it is all-consuming. And the result is that they do not know what makes them stumble. So imagine that you're literally like blindfolded moving around this room. You would constantly be bumping into people and tripping over things and thinking, what was that? Like, what did I just trip over? Uh, why is life not working? Why do I keep running into things that I can't see and comprehend? What's wrong here? We all know something's wrong. The most uh, ardent atheists in the world know that something is deeply wrong with humanity, with the life that we're living. So then there's that question, okay, what is wrong? What do I do about it? Where am I going to look? Well, the secular answer is that I just need more money or more education or more friends or more alcohol or another night out on the town or, or whatever it is that are your uh, sort of releases of choice uh, to, to sort of fix that nagging feeling. But the great tragedy of our secular culture uh, isn't that life isn't working well. I think that's actually God's grace. By his grace, life does not work very well without him. So the great tragedy of secular culture 
is not the um, absolutely out of control rates of anxiety and depression or a nagging sense of purposelessness or um, constantly bumping painfully into things that we don't comprehend. Uh, that, I would say, is God's grace. The tragedy of secular culture is that there's little to no admission that life is not working well. We're, we're, we're not allowed to admit that within secular culture. We're not allowed to acknowledge that on, on, a, on a public cultural level. We all just have to pretend as if it is working and carry on in that way. So there's a sense of, man, I'm, I'm confused. I'm so confused. I'm in such a fog that I don't know up from down. I can hardly tell that I'm stumbling in the first place. I, I can't admit that, especially when I'm convinced there's no alternative. Uh, and in my previous life of secular atheism, I experienced all of those things. I'm not speaking of, of this as some like detached, you know, angry religious person. I'm speaking from how I felt, how I lived for decades of my life before Jesus. I had an intellectual but incomprehensible worldview. I could not truly answer any of life's most difficult questions apart from sort of flawed Darwinian answers. I could not truly tell you where life came from or where I came from or where I was headed or what the purpose of my life was or what would happen after I died. I believe that there was no God, but somehow that there was morality, which honestly doesn't make sense at all. Um, you actually can't have both philosophically, uh, but I did. And along the way, I was certainly tripping over things that I didn't understand because I, I had an inaccurate worldview. And so I, I was tripping over things to be sure, but I wasn't tripping as hard as the people around me. And so on the whole, I felt like, wow, I'm actually doing pretty good. Uh, I, life is hard. Yeah, it's confusing. Yes but I'm not tripping nearly as much as all of these other people around me. So I felt pretty good about myself. Uh, but in the process, looking back, I could not comprehend the gravity of my own lostness. I, 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 it's hard to tell when you're in the dark how dark it is or, or what the light would even look like on the other side. Uh, and in a real sense, I was like the Egyptians on the other side of that cloud at the Red Sea. I was um, persecuting the people of God, not physically, because that's illegal, uh, but intellectually. I had a few Christian friends and I, I really was not kind to them. Uh, I, I really uh, sort of went after them and ultimately, uh, like the Egyptians, I was just wanting them to sort of give up what they were doing and just come back to the country that I lived. Say, so, hey, things aren't that bad in Egypt, and there is no promised land on the other side of that sea and desert. And guess what? Nobody's going to part the Red Sea for you. You really ought to give that stuff up and just come back and live where I live. In the land of Egypt. But all along in that time, I was walking in darkness and confusion. I could not see the way of the cross. I could not understand Jesus. I could not fathom someone parting the Red Sea. I couldn't see, uh, I couldn't really uh, understand or comprehend the people of God uh, or who they were or the story that they were living. I was very near to those people, but I could not comprehend that story or what they 
were doing. Uh, all of that was foggy. I, I was living a different narrative in which Egypt uh, really wasn't that bad and the promised land didn't exist and it was time to just move on with life. Uh, that's, that's the secular narrative that we inherit, the Egyptian narrative. Uh, but then there was this moment in my early 20s when God really got a hold of me and, and all of a sudden, uh, something shifted within my heart and within my vision. All of a sudden, uh, I was able to see who Jesus was. This, this uh, fog and confusion began to part. And, and in a moment of time, I, I was brought into this place over this threshold where all of a sudden I was surrounded by the people of God, but I was sort of wearing Egyptian clothes uh, and believing Egyptian narratives and carrying Egyptian weapons. And then like looking back at this cloud and thinking, oh my gosh, like everything looks different now. And, and so there was this season of life of like throwing out Egyptian weapons and, and setting aside Egyptian clothes and deconstructing, uh, deconstructing Egyptian narratives and adopting new narratives and new identity and new clothes and, and new types of weapons that don't make sense in the eyes of the world. There was this season of transition from one to the next. And all of a sudden I came into this place where there was a darkness behind me in my past that I'd been freed from. And there was this light of the world above me, which made everything look different. And the people of God were around me and the way of the cross was in front of me and, and the spirit of God was inside of me. And all of a sudden, everything in life was different. Everything changed by moving from one side of the cloud to the other, to a place where everything was foggy and confusing, uh, to a place of light. And the promised land is still far away. In, in fact, when you move from one side of that cloud to the other side, you're probably like 2% closer to the promised land. It's still very far away for all of us who are following Jesus. And yet it is so much more real now than it was on the other side of that cloud. And that's where we find ourselves today. Freed from slavery, from the tyranny of Satan's sin and death freed from darkness and confusion, on a journey together through the desert, following the light of the world over mountains and through valleys on our way to the eternal promised land. 1 Peter 2 describes and contrasts the unbelieving pagan culture and the people of God, and he uses these terms and these analogies. He says, now to you who believe, to the people of God, this stone, which is referring to Jesus, is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. It's this image of stumbling around in the darkness, tripping over something that was meant to bless me, something that I cannot comprehend. That's, that's the other side of the cloud. But you, 
on this side of the cloud, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That's who we are. Uh, We rejoice because he's called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And, And yet in the midst of that rejoicing as the people of God, we also pray. Because there are thousands of people in our city and millions of people in our country and billions of people on our planet who are currently walking in darkness. Who don't know God, who are on the wrong side of the cloud, who are stumbling around, many of them searching, hungry, eager to find the light, but with no one to speak to them, with no one to embody the light for them in a meaningful, sacrificial way. So as we close this morning, I'll invite the worship team back up. And uh, I want us to, uh, I'm going to invite us to do both of these things in response to Jesus being the light of the world. Uh, First is that we primarily as this community, as this special possession, as God's um, people, we rejoice. Uh, We rejoice, we practice gratitude, we're reminded week in and week out as we gather that we've been brought from a place of darkness into a place of light. That if Jesus hadn't come, every single one of us would be lost in the darkness, wandering around, trying to make the most of things as I was. And so as we worship today, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, as, as Americans, I think we're like more expressive than British people. Um, but that's about it. I think like everyone else in the world, uh, and when it comes to following Jesus, is more expressive than we are. And so you have to wrestle with that in your heart. I don't want anybody to fake anything. But if it's really true, like if what's in Scripture is true, if Jesus is really back from the dead, if he's really leading us in the light toward the eternal promised land, um, it's okay to rejoice in that. Like it's okay to celebrate. It's okay to respond as if that were true. And so when we gather week in and week out, uh, we don't fake stuff. We don't plaster on a smile because we think we should. Sometimes we weep in worship because of the contrast of what we're going through and what's waiting for us out front. And, and that's really appropriate. But, but we should worship as if this stuff were true. We should rejoice as if it were true. We should practice gratitude and experience joy in all circumstances, Scripture says. Not because we just naturally feel happy, but because this is always true. So we root ourselves in this place, in the mountains and in the valleys. We practice gratitude. We practice rejoicing. But before we get there, I actually want us to start with prayer. And what I want us to do is set aside a few moments to pray this morning, specifically for people who are walking in darkness. And I could do a whole nother sermon on the people who prayed for me for decades when I showed 0% interest in God before he finally broke through. And so I want to take a moment to do that, to acknowledge, wow, thank you, Jesus. You have brought us out of darkness and into the light, not because we're bigger or better or more moral than the Egyptians. That was never the case. 
It was purely by grace that he said, I'm taking you, I'm freeing you, you will be mine, you will have my life. And so we rejoice in that, but we also say, Lord, we pray for those in darkness. We pray for those who are stumbling. We pray for those who are hungry and who are thirsty and who are knocking and who are seeking but haven't found you yet. Would you break through into their lives? So we're going to take a moment to do that and we're going to do it around the bread and the cup this morning. So different than most weeks, I'm going to pray for us and I'm going to open the tables right now. You can, If you're a follower of Jesus, uh, then this is for you. You can grab the bread and the cup and there's a, you know, a wafer hidden in the lid of the little cup that we have uh, and take it back to your seat. Don't take it yet. Uh, I'm going to jump up. As soon as you all get communion, I'm going to jump up and start us in a time of prayer. Um, so don't take communion yet. I'll explain what we're going to do there. If you have not given your life to Jesus, if you've never crossed from darkness to light, to belonging to him, today's as good a day as any day to make that decision and to surrender in that way. So if you've never surrendered, we invite you to do that now. And if you have, go ahead and grab the bread and the cup uh, and bring it back to your seat. And uh, I'll tell you what's next.